The American Diabetes Association's Advocates Connected podcast series features pairs of incredible volunteers. We're bringing advocates together who have come to diabetes advocacy from different places and perspectives, but who both engage in advocacy to bend the curve on diabetes and help people living with diabetes and their families thrive. Hi, I'm Julia Nash, Director of Grassroots at the American Diabetes Association. Our first podcast features two amazing diabetes advocates who first met at ADA's annual Call to Congress. Deirdre Murphy, who hails from San Antonio, and Mary Beth Lacey, who is from Cannell City in rural East Kentucky. Both Deirdre and Mary Beth are longtime and determined diabetes advocates who first met each other at ADA's annual Call to Congress in Washington, D.C. So Mary Beth and Deirdre, can you introduce yourselves? What's your interest in diabetes? What brought you to volunteer for ADA? Deirdre? Yes, of course. Thanks so much for having me on this. I'm very excited that we're uh, getting to do this. And I love my friend Mary Beth, so it's all good. Um, so <laughs> I was diagnosed as an adult with type 1 diabetes, which is a little different than most people's stories who live with type 1. So diagnosed as an adult. And in the year that I was diagnosed, um, my the company that I work for was using ADA's Step Out Walk as its featured charity walk that year. And so when my department found out that I had just been diagnosed, because I was pretty open with it, uh, they were like, you are now the uh, team captain. So I became the team captain um, that year and then did that for a couple more years. And then the local ADA office, you know, saw that I guess I had some skills and talents that were showing. I don't know. Um, and so they asked me to... Um, to go back and to work on the Step Out Walk. And so I got super involved in Step Out Walk and what that was here in San Antonio um, and how that kind of emulated and that kind of thing. Um, and then along the way, joined the community leadership board that was here in San Antonio um, and eventually kind of moved into this area of advocacy kind of out of need. There was nobody else really doing it. Um, people knew that I was originally from the Washington DC area and had some experience um, with federal government and with elected officials in the federal government. And so it was kind of like, Deirdre, you're gonna be our new advocacy chair. So, uh, so did that for a while um, and then um, was asked to be a part of the National Advocacy Committee. Um, and so now sit on the National Advocacy Committee serving in a role as an advocacy chair um, coming out of the, the ranks of advocates to provide my um, in an advisory capacity to that advocacy committee and to the national board on advocacy issues. That's great. Mary Beth? I am a little different than Deirdre in that I was diagnosed when I was three. So I really don't know life without diabetes, but I do know life without the ADA because I didn't learn about you all until I was 21. And I actually volunteered with the, the diabetes camp. And so that was my first interaction with the American Diabetes Association. But like many other people who had grown up with diabetes, I kept hearing there's going to be a cure within mm -hmm. five years. And you know, 44 years later, 
we're still waiting for that that cure. And in that time, I kept thinking, who's going to speak up for me? Um, who's going to speak up for other people? And ultimately, I realized nobody was. And, and there was a, an opening and an availability to do that. I had connected, I'd gotten a job and I'd reconnected with the ADA through my role as the advocacy chair with the Kentucky Diabetes Network. And so through that, I reconnected with the ADA, learned so much about their efforts. And, um, you know, I, I love doing work with, with the ADA and then meeting people like Deirdre has been fantastic. So, um, you know, it's just, it's a good fit for me. And now I realize nobody else is going to, well, there are the people who speak up because there are other advocates, but I have that responsibility to speak up for myself. Absolutely. And no one will tell your story but you. And I know that you met at ADA's Call to Congress, which is ADA's annual advocacy event on Capitol Hill, where about 200, 250 people come um, to Capitol Hill, whether they're people living with diabetes, like we are, or family members, healthcare providers, and others. And we make sure that diabetes research and programs are funded, and we stand up for healthcare and more. Can you tell us a little bit about how you met and then became friends, Mary Beth? You know, it's so interesting because I, I, we just clicked. I think we met through a mutual friend and um, I have a, a little bit of philosophy, fake it till you make it. So when I was in this large room of 200 people, really not knowing anybody else, I just looked around for people who seemed approachable. And so through this mutual friend, I approached Deirdre and we talked some, but really our bonding happened over a couple crazy selfies and um, hijinks, um, I, an American Ninja Warrior story. And when you find someone that you can be very serious with, and the, the topic of our advocacy is always very serious, but then someone you can also laugh with, and Deirdre and I laugh together a lot, that really just solidified that relationship and um you know i was i was thinking about it we've known each other for years and it just seems like you've always we've always been together and so um you know she's someone that understands the hard bits and pieces of diabetes but we also we, we can crack each other up as well <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's true <laughs> deirdre anything you want to add to your your meet cute yeah, I, I think for me, so I am, um, much to most people's surprise, I am a true introvert, um, and I struggle when I'm in a room of 200 plus people. Um, and the, the first year that I was at Call to Congress, um, I didn't even know what I was walking into. I literally knew nothing about it. The, I actually was blessed. I had somebody else from San Antonio who was there with me as well, but he had had a lot of experience having been there lots of times. So he knew lots and lots of people. Um, <clears throat> and so he kind of took off and left me behind. <laughs> and, um, and as Mary Beth said, somewhere along the way, one of our, one of my fellow Texas advocates who happens to be friends with Mary Beth as well said, well, come to dinner with us, you know, don't worry about him kind of an attitude about it. Right. Um, and come to dinner with us. And so I joined this group for dinner and I think I ended up sitting next to Mary Beth at the dinner. I really think that's how the conversation kind of got started, but, 
Um, and then just since then, you know, um, Mary Beth's this personality that's she's got a big personality um, and she fills the room um, and she's not scared to talk to people and be energetic and drag people along. So I kind of joke around. She's my wing woman. Um, you know, because when I'm not going to be the person to reach out and talk to people, Mary Beth will be that person. And so, um, so kind of tagging along with, <laughs> tagging along with her gets me to meet people and talk to people too. It kind of forces me out of that comfort zone, which is great. Um, and, and then as she said, I think, you know, in the, I don't know what it's been now, seven, eight years since we've known each other, that even though, We've never visited each other's homes. We've never kind of seen um, each other's life on the day-to-day. -day. We still are in contact and know what's going on in the day-to-day -day, um, and can be there as support, even if it's simply just, hey, I'm praying for you, or hey, um, you know, what are you doing in Kentucky because I need some help in Texas or vice versa. Um, and so I think that's what's really important for us. Absolutely. That's great. And we hear a lot about um, our advocates kind of finding their people, finding their community, the people who will help you, who will offer guidance, who will support you, you know, as an advocate and as a person living with diabetes. And that connection and support is, is incredible. So I, uh, I, I'm glad that you both have your wing women. <laughs> Me and, too. Talking a little bit about living with diabetes, I wonder kind of as you're, from your perspective as a person living with diabetes, how would you describe diabetes in one word? Tough. It's, it's gritty and tough. Oh, that's two words. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting how your perspective can change based on the day because some days are, are easier than others. But when you look at 44 years of this, it's tough. Um, and that's why I call it a Congress is so important because I feel like it's a way for me to kind of punch diabetes back and say, I win. I'm winning this battle. And even if something happened to me tonight, I won because look at what we've done through the changes in legislation. Look at what we've done through this research. And so for me, because diabetes is tough, there, there has to be a way to, to touch back. So I think for me, I look at it as, um, I, I use the word challenge a lot, but not necessarily in a negative connotation, right? So it, it's just something else that's there in my life every day. Um, it is a challenge, and I do try to share that and spread that with people. Um, it is 24-7, 365, I'm never not attached to this disease. It's not ever going to go away unless by some miracle in my lifetime, a cure happens. Um, it, you know, it's not gonna ever go away. I'm always going to be challenged by it. Um, but for me, that just makes me stronger. The fact that I have this challenge that I can work on and overcome, um, in my head, that just makes me even stronger. The fact that I can live with this and I still live a full life, it doesn't stop me um, and that kind of thing. So, Absolutely. And kind of to that point, what is it you think the average person or lawmaker may not understand about the daily reality of living with diabetes? Deirdre? Sure. So... 
I definitely think that, <clears throat> sorry, people have no idea the burden that it really is. So I mentioned it's 24 seven, 365. Um, for me, I'm attached to devices um, because I choose to live with the technology attached to me. So a continuous glucose monitor and an insulin pump. Um, and those are two different sites that are taped on my body. <laughs> um, and so I think just understanding what that burden is, the fact that it's constant calculations in the head, um, that it's constantly there as part of the thought process. So on top of the other hundred plus tabs of thought that we have in a day, I have to add another hundred for my diabetes. Um, and and understanding how exercise affects me, how different foods affect it, um, and learning all of that. So just the simplicity of going out to eat, right? Like a person not living with diabetes can go to any restaurant they want and just eat whatever they want and not have to think about <clears throat> hey, how much fat is in that, how much carbohydrate is in that, et cetera. I don't get that luxury ever. Um, the, the devices connected, I, I jokingly tell, um, I told my mom this story not that long ago and she, even she didn't get it, right? And she's my mom, you know, she's been around through my entire years of diagnosis. Um, but I was like, mom, you don't understand what it's like to take a shower with nothing on me. Like I get to remove those sites and take a shower. Well, because of the timing of the changing of those devices, that's not every day. <laughs> That's not even every three days. It's maybe once every three months where the timing actually works out exactly right um, to, to be that they're both on the same day that I get to change them and therefore take them off and take a shower with my body with nothing attached. Um, and so um, so I think just understanding that, that it really is and truly is a burden um, for those of us who live with it. Mary Beth, what is it that you think that the average person doesn't understand about living with diabetes? I don't think they understand that diabetes is like a giant. It's a battle that's constantly going on. And, you know, I have to echo Deirdre on that. I, I don't think people understand how demanding it is and that there's no break. Um, I think that sometimes there are, there is a perception that it's a funny disease or I mean, we've all seen the memes and the jokes and those those bother me a lot because it downplays the seriousness of this disease. There is no break. This giant hammers away at you every single day. And one of the, 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 the mantras that kind of gets me through on those really tough days, and I've had a lot in the last three months because diabetes changes. It's, it's not like it was for me 20 years ago or five years ago, it constantly changes at the different phases of your life. And so I've found a saying that really helps me and it's lift your eyes, giant slayer. So if diabetes is my giant, I'm the giant slayer. And that's what I would want people to understand is it's in your body 24 seven, every day of your life. But even though there are those extra choices, the choices that we make, can enable us to be the giant slayer. And I just wish people understood the impact of living with this constantly. That would mean a lot to me. 
Absolutely. And that's part of what we're doing as advocates, whether it's on Capitol Hill or in your state legislatures. And I know, Mary Beth, that having lived with diabetes for, I think now over 40 years, you can maybe talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what has changed in terms of treatment and management um, and some of the research that, uh, that we advocate for and how that's made an impact on our everyday lives. Yeah, I'm actually coming up on my 44th diversary. That's our, our term. It's our, our language, our lingo. And so having lived with this for 44 years, it is so incredibly different. It was a guessing game when I was a kid. I don't know how my parents did it. I huge applause, a standing ovation for them because it was guesswork. At that point, we had um, urinalysis test strips. And that's the only tool that we had to know what our blood sugar was. Um, I was actually diagnosed because of the smell of my breath. And, you know, that is not necessarily how we're diagnosed today at all. And so I look at it and I have a very different perspective because I am so thankful for the technology. As I mentioned, since I was a little girl, I've been hearing in five years, there will be a cure for diabetes. And that's wonderful. I'm always going to work for that cure. I want it. But until or unless that happens, I want to live life to the fullest. So I embrace all of the technology that's coming. Um, I remember when I got my latest pump and the first, the first iteration of the continuous glucose uh, monitor, the first people that I wanted to tell were my mom and dad. And it was incredible because even though I'm mid forties now, my mom still worries. It's so funny because yeah. she can follow me on the Dexcom app right now. And she'll call me at one o'clock in the morning. Beth, I think you're getting a little low. And I'm like, mom, it's 120. Don't wake me up. But seeing her be able to have this piece, it's not just for me. So I want to encourage all the moms and the dads out there. I know it's frustrating to not have a cure yet, but we have come so far, which is why I will not stop advocating because we go every year and ask for continued funding for research. The research that's happening now is what will help people 10, 15 years from now. The advocates who were fighting so hard 30 years ago are why Deirdre and I sat, sit here as robots, if you will. And so, I just want to encourage people, don't give up, be a giant slayer, because we have come so far. And it's also the reason, this is a little maybe extra than what you've asked for, but it's why I love being an advocate for the American Diabetes Association. I want a cure, absolutely. But until there is a cure, I want to live my best life possible. And the ADA focuses on that. You're so well-rounded in enabling me to, if I wanted to drive a commercial vehicle, hey, we can do that now. You can fly a plane. We can do that now. I want to live life to the fullest until or unless that cure comes. And I feel that the being an advocate for the ADA is one way I can do that. That's great. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Mary Beth, Deidre, do you have anything to add on the technology and management side? No, I just, I, I know, and I've, I've said this, I've said this even to lawmakers. I am convinced I would not be alive today without it. Um, I, um, I don't have any sense of going low. And so 
Um, I wear a continuous glucose monitor so that it'll warn me, right? Um, and now I wear a pump that has technology that if I'm going low, just turns off the basal. So, I, you know, it turns off my insulin. So the fact that we're at that point, so even in, so I was diagnosed 14 years ago and just in those 14 years, that ability exists, you know? Um, the ability for the pump to give me extra insulin if I'm going high or to turn it off if I'm going low. Um, we're almost there at that artificial pancreas. Mm-hmm. It almost exists. Absolutely. Um, and, and so the amazingness of the research being done into helping people to live, to live with diabetes mm-hmm. um, and Um, I think even, so I live in a city where a lot of research happens on type two diabetes and even the research being done into the medications and into the prevention side of it. um, And the fact that ADA um, is helping to support that is amazing. Um, There's a lot of research here in San Antonio on children with type two. um, and, And it makes me sad that we're at that point But at the same time, I'm encouraged that there is some research and so that maybe those children are going to have an easier time living with their diabetes um, and not face some of the complications that I've seen in some of the older people that I know um, who have had amputations or lost eyesight or whatever, um, that this technology is helping me live the best life I can. I think Mary Beth mentioned that to um it's helping me to live the best life i can i haven't changed that much from before diagnosis to after diagnosis and it's because of the technology that i don't have to um you know i wear a pump so i can eat whatever time i want right and you know um and i don't i don't have to change my life because i have this extra disease but that's all credit to the technology Absolutely. And I think as you both have really underscored in a really powerful way, it's quality of life, but it's also life. It's keeping us here until there there is a cure. Um, and I think that's actually a good transition to um, talking a little bit about the differences um, between Mary Beth and you, Deirdre. I know you're from very different communities, Deirdre being from one of the largest cities in the United States in San Antonio, and Mary Beth being from a town of 300 in rural Kentucky. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you see and what works well for you in your community, Mary Beth? That's actually an emotional question for me because Kentucky has one of the highest rates uh, of, of diabetes in the nation. and you know, I choose to live in a town of 300 people. Um, I travel a lot with my job, so I and I can work from home. So, I love living where I can look out and be in community. But it's hard because one in four Kentuckians. I mean, the the numbers are through the roof, and that that is so hard because having lived life with this disease, I would run in front of a speeding train to keep someone else from having it. I don't want someone else to have to walk this path. So, you know, it's interesting when I travel through my small East Kentucky communities or the counties where, you know, 15% of the county population lives, that's the, that's the occurrence of diabetes. So it's interesting because, yes, my town is tiny. Deirdre's is huge, if that's even the correct descriptor. <laughs> but yet, when you look at the percentage, there's a similarity there. 
And so while life is very different in a small town, my pharmacy is two hours away. Um, you know, so I get a three month supply, but I drive two hours away to get it. Mail order is not a great option because I don't want my insulin in my mailbox outside all day. So there are those pieces that I don't think people understand between rural and and urban, those those conveniences that are there that, you know, Deirdre might not think twice about. I'm not going to have my insulin, my three month supply of insulin left in my mailbox on a June day in Kentucky. That's just not a good plan. So I, I, I look at my counties. I mean, in my entire county, there are less than 13,000 people. And Deirdre and I laugh about that a lot because that's probably, you know, her, her square block. Um, but it's, I think the concern and the passion is the same. That's, that's something that is similar between the two of us, whether it's a, a, an urban area or a rural area, these are still our community. And while Deirdre may not know all of their names, and, and I do, because I know my neighbors, I know who they are, they call me or send me a message. Um, I'm not a huge fan of social media, but I stay on there because people are messaging all the time asking questions. So, you know, it's 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 a different beast because of the challenges you may have to face, the travel to get to your pharmacy or accessibility of care. But regardless of the geography, I mean, diabetes doesn't know boundaries. There are no boundaries for diabetes and it doesn't care. And I think Deirdre and I both feel that responsibility, regardless of the size of our towns, cities. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I would agree. And I, I think so, so Mary Beth's right. Obviously, I come from a huge city. Um, I walk three blocks to the pharmacy. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, um, and I do. I think I, I, I would say that, you know, because I know Mary Beth and I know the situation she's in, I don't take it for granted. But you very easily could if you lived in a big city. Um, you could take for granted the fact that you have all of that right there at your fingertips. Um, but even with that, in terms of advocacy, I still find the challenges. I still find people. So I live in a huge city. I live in a city that's represented by five, five congressmen. Um, I only live in one of those districts, right? Cause we all only live in one district. Um, but I feel this, I feel compelled to, to represent everybody in San Antonio because I'm the advocacy chair, the advocacy expert in San Antonio that I feel compelled to have to represent everybody. So I make an effort to try to meet with all five, right? But that doesn't always happen. Um, And I can't, I'm coming to realize after six years of doing this, I really can't do this all by myself. And it still continues to be a challenge to find people that aren't scared to do this, that are willing to step up. Um, I know that the advocacy network that ADA has is huge. It it numbers in the hundreds of thousands and that's awesome. Um, And so, but I still continue to struggle to figure out how do I get those people involved? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I make sure that people are staying up on it and apprised? I think it's very easy in today's world to just do the social media thing um, or the email thing. Oh, I got an action alert. Sure, I'll send an email. Or sure, I'll post something on my Facebook or my Twitter or Instagram. 
um, because that's really easy to do and they don't have to put themselves out there. Um, and so I, I think it's hard for people to be vulnerable um, about their disease, right? And I say it that way. I know that we have lots of advocates in the network that are parents of and family and friends of people living with diabetes. But it's for those of us who are living with the diabetes, I think sometimes it's hard for us to become vulnerable to share what that challenge and that burden is. Um, and so, um, so I do, I think, you know, what does work is reaching out through social media, through email, um, those kinds of things work. Um, the in-person stuff's harder and I feel like I'm still learning, right? I, I mean, you know, people around here are like, oh, you're the expert, but I feel like I'm still learning how to do that too and how to make sure I get other people involved. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And like diabetes, advocacy is never static. There's always the next piece of legislation, the next funding cycle, et cetera. So in a certain extent, we come back to um, not the same place, but um, a similar place. And what we're trying to do is pull new people into the fold. And that's part of what we're doing here today. But we have a network of 500,000 diabetes advocates at ADA, and we want to engage each and every single one of them because this disease touches us all. So I, I want to just transition a little bit to sort of the middle section of this and ask, what's your jam? Mary Beth, what energizes and motivates you as a diabetes advocate and keeps you going? Yeah, so what we've just talked about, it's getting new people involved. I love it when somebody sends their first email. I love it when people share their first story. And, you know, you don't just have to do that on Capitol Hill. You can do it in your state capitol. You can do it in your home, writing letters to your to your editor of your small town Kentucky paper or your large one. And because, yes, here we still read the paper. It's, it's a fun thing. But, you know, getting people involved and engaged and helping them find their voice because it took me so long to find mine. Like I said earlier, I kept waiting for someone to speak up. And if you think about it, you just mentioned we have 500,000 advocates with the American Diabetes Association. So we know that even outside of those individuals, there are more. It excites me when I think about what would happen if we all began to speak in one powerful voice. We would be a roar. We could not be ignored. We wouldn't be fighting and begging and pleading for funding year after year if each person who lived with diabetes in their body and the people who love them would speak together in a shared message, we could not be ignored. And that's exciting to me. I'm ready for us to be that loud and that respected. I'm ready for this disease and all of those of us living with it. I'm ready for us to be respected because we're speaking in that voice. So yeah, that excites me. Absolutely, and that's 30 million Americans mm -hmm. living with diabetes and 86, I think the latest stat is, living uh, who are at risk for diabetes. So that that would be a roar. Deirdre. Yeah. Can you imagine? I, I can, it is exciting. Deirdre, what is <laughs> your jam? What keeps you up at night? What compels you to keep going, to engage more deeply in advocacy? And uh, what do you like to do most? Yeah. So I, I think, so my friends, among my friends, have become known as the myth buster. Uh, so um, I really work very hard to get awareness messaging out. Um, and um, 
I feel like the more that I can engage anybody and everybody that I interact with, um, that, that the more that the message will get spread and people will understand better. Mary Beth mentioned shortly and quickly earlier about jokes and memes and things like that. There's TV shows um, out there that misrepresent us all the time. Um, and it happens regularly and we still continue to see it. Um, I have friends, I had to correct my friend the other day when she's like, yeah, I think I might have, you know, I might be getting diabetes because I've eaten too much sugar lately. And, you know, it's it for, for those of us that have studied it and learned it and figured it out, whether it's because we have it or whether because we're in the industry, um, you know, working to prevent it and to take care of people with diabetes, like dispelling those myths is really important. Um, and, and spending time putting that awareness messaging. So, so I tell people I live pretty openly with diabetes. I wear my pump hooked on the outside of my pocket just cause that's where it's most comfortable. But it also then becomes a conversation piece for me. Oh, is that your pager? I get that a lot. Gen Xers, we understand what that means. Those of you younger, maybe not. Um, but you know, I get asked that a lot. Oh, is that your pager? Is that your phone? And I'm like, no, actually, it's my insulin pump. Let me tell you a little bit more about what it does for me. Um, and it's my opportunity to to show that and to share um, what diabetes is. It's an opportunity to explain the difference between type one and type two um, and what that really means. You know, because people be like, well, can't you just exercise and eat better? Well, no, I can't. There are people living with diabetes who maybe could. Um, but I can't. So, so it's that opportunity. Getting that awareness messaging out there is, for me, one of the most fun things. I do this big project during National Diabetes Month every year during November, where every single day I post a different factoid or I dispel a different myth. Um, and so people have come to expect that off my off my social media uh, platforms. But um, but it's just a, it's one of the things that I think it's super easy to do a. Um, but it does keep me up at night how many people really still don't know. I mean, this is one of my best friends that came to me with that question this week about eating too much sugar and it becoming diabetes. And I'm like, wait, how did I miss you in all of this? So, um, so that really does. <laughs> That's great. And I know you both are really focused on eradicating the stigma and the blame game. Um, is there anything else you want to say about that? So, I, I, I mean, I can add a little bit. I know Mary Beth talks about it too sometimes, but, you know, the stigma's hard. The blame game's hard. I didn't do anything except maybe catch a virus at some point <laughs> um, to, to cause me to have diabetes. So um, it, it's not because of the lifestyle I led um, or anything. It's just something that happened. Um, and so, and it is hard occasionally. And again, it goes back to the memes, the jokes, the TV shows that get it wrong. Um, it, it's hard because it's figuring out how do, how do I combat that? And so again, as much as I can do it to dispel those myths and to combat that, I'm going to do that. That's great. So, um, kind of drawing from all of your experience, I just want to invite you to share a gem um, from your um, 
just your wisdom. What is your closing advice to other advocates, especially new people who may not know as much as you do at this point, but want to become involved in supporting ADA's advocacy efforts? Go I would say don't engage in the diabetes civil war. You know, sometimes that can happen in the diabetes community between type one and type two. That's crazy. And what's interesting is that I actually live with both. It is possible. It's like I won the lottery and not in a good way. But if we, again, spoke in that one powerful voice, type one or type two, there are so many different methods for managing this disease. Understand what works for you may not work for someone else. And that's okay. As long as we're together and we're caring for each other, find that diabetes community, be part of that family. Um, you know, I didn't have that really. I felt pretty isolated before this advocacy family. And I speak about that all the time, how these aren't just people that we meet once a year, we've become a family and we understand each other. And so if we as a family, even if we're a little different, would would speak together and not engage in this is how you should do it or that's how you should do it or pumps are better than multiple daily injections, don't go there. Let's find one message. We want to live life to the fullest. We deserve to be respected. Then that's that's my little gem of knowledge. Just don't engage in the negativity. Come together and then see what happens for all of us. I think it would be incredible. I really do. Absolutely. And what I tell people all the time is that a rising tide lifts all boats. And whether mm -hmm. you live with type 1 or type 2, gestational diabetes or LADA or other types of diabetes, or if you care for someone who lives with one of these types of diabetes, or if you're a healthcare provider or a researcher, you all have a role to play and you mm -hmm. all have your unique story and no one can tell it but you and you're the expert in your own life. So what I tell new people is, you are a subject matter expert and you bring a lot to ADA advocacy efforts. And it's Deirdre, what, what would you say? What's your gem? So, so I think my, my little gem is to encourage people to not be afraid to get involved in more than just posting on social media. So um, I, I think that Lots of people assume that members of Congress are these scary people over there in Washington, and that's it. And they feel removed from what that is and what goes on. Um, and so I think it's just understanding and realizing uh, they're people too. <laughs> um, they, they are willing to listen. I have learned that in my experience of doing this now that they are willing to listen. They'll listen to you and they'll hear um, what you have to say, but you do have to have a story. So coming up with what that story is and what to focus on is different for every single person um, because everybody has their own diabetes experience. Um, and no one, I have yet to hear any one experience that is exactly like anybody else's. Um, they're as different as we are different. And so, um, so I think figuring out what your story is, what your link is to it, um, and figuring out how, how you can connect, um, whether you're in rural Kentucky and spend most of your time on social media and through emails, or whether you live in a place like San Antonio, Texas, or Austin, Texas, or 
Washington, Washington DC, um, where you have that ability to do that. So finding other diabetes advocates, I, when I first got diagnosed, I didn't know anything about diabetes, literally nothing, nobody in my family, none of my friends. My whole experience was I used to babysit a kid who had it. And all I knew about it was no apples is the only snack he was allowed to have, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so I had to spend a lot of time learning it while linking with other diabetes advocates and finding Facebook groups and, mm. um, you know, meetup groups and things like that are what helps you find other people that have similar enough stories that they're going to understand your story. Um, so I think that's really it. Just trying to make sure, like, don't be afraid to get started. Like we all started somewhere. Um, it's, it's not a big deal to get started. Just start doing something. Absolutely. That's great. And I would just add that when you're just getting started, ADA will support your efforts, will hold your hand and kind of walk you through the beginning steps. And you never know where your efforts are going to lead or where telling your story might make an incredible difference for you, your family, your community, or even the country. Um, and that's really empowering. You don't choose to become a part of this diabetes club, but the people you find in this fight tend to be pretty terrific. All right, <laughs> so we're going to start kind of wrapping things up. I know you both are coming to Washington DC now um, for uh, call to Congress, but that's just one of 52 weeks each year. Can you talk a little bit about what you do at other times of the year as a diabetes advocate? Yeah, that's, I'm involved all the time. I mean, I teach people to cook because again, you know, I'm in a very small town, but I travel through 38 East Kentucky counties. And something as simple as how can you shop at a place like the Dollar General store or the Dollar Tree and make healthier choices? So I'll shop with people all the time or post on my social media, hey, did you know that there are frozen vegetables available here? Advocacy isn't just political advocacy, it's education as well. And so even if you have a job that says, no, you can't be an advocate, that means political advocacy. You can be an advocate in so many ways. So I'll do that. Um, I've helped people learn how to give their injections because like I said, I live in a small community and driving an hour to your provider isn't always feasible. And then I'm very engaged in political advocacy here in the state. Uh, my senators, my state legislators call me all the time or send me messages. And sometimes it's late at night and I'm thinking, oh gosh, I'm really too tired for this. And then I think, and they've got to be even more exhausted. But yet here they are calling me to ask about this piece of legislation. What's your recommendation here? We're trying to find a compromise. And so that piece, I think if, if you're learning how to be an advocate and it is 52 weeks a year, you have to learn the balance and how to do relationship. You have to work toward unity. You can't, um, you know, I've picked diabetes as my one issue. Um, there are other things that I care deeply about, but I need to remain neutral on a lot of things so that anybody from any party is gonna feel comfortable picking up the phone and texting or calling me. So I do that, I'm very, very engaged. And the other piece that I've learned with advocacy is I've chosen to be vulnerable. 
I'm, I'm relatively private, which probably surprises both of you all because it, it amazes me that Deirdre thinks I fill up a room because I really would prefer to be in the corner just hanging out with her talking about, you know, our favorite stupid moment that we've we've laughed about. But I've had to choose proactive, like intentionally choose to be vulnerable. Um, over Christmas last year, I got very sick um, because of an interaction with the medication and I woke up, I had been unconscious for several days and I woke up and I said, mom, take a picture for advocacy. I kind of regret that because I then actually shared it and it's not a flattering picture, but that's what I mean is you have to be vulnerable with advocacy because you can't just paint the happy picture. There are lots of happy pictures and there are many of us who do that, but I've specifically and intentionally chosen to show in my life, some days are incredible some days are not. And so I, I choose to live a lifestyle of advocacy, um, whether it's shopping with someone at a Dollar Tree who's got a $10 grocery budget or being on Capitol Hill. So that's me. That's great. Deirdre, what's, what is your, um, what's your sort of wrap up here, how you stay involved the other, the other 51 days, 51 weeks each year? Okay. So... For me, I really enjoy the federal advocacy piece. Um, there's not as much work um, with ADA right now in my state. So I spend a lot of time on federal advocacy. Um, and so I really work hard year round to continue those relationships with those members of Congress. I mentioned earlier, there are five of them <laughs> um, here in this area. Um, so I don't just have one congressman and two senators that I'm worrying about. I'm trying to worry about five congressmen and two senators. Um, and so I follow them on social media. Mm -hmm. I connect with their staffers on LinkedIn or Facebook um, or Instagram. Um, I try to stay active with their sites um, in addition to doing my own posts. Um, related to the issue of diabetes advocacy, whether it's from an awareness perspective, as I mentioned earlier, the whole myth busting and dispelling myths, or whether it's because there's some bill in the legislature or some action that we're trying to take from a legal advocacy um, perspective. Um, so I think just continually doing that, it's this extra job but as Mary Beth said, it's this one that we're willing to take on because we're willing to focus on that. And similar to Mary Beth, I have lots of other issues I care about. Um, but I've chosen this as the one that takes the, the bulk of my time, the bulk of the space on my social media platforms, um, et cetera, um, to ensure that, you know, this is the one because it affects me so intimately on a regular 24-7, 365 basis, I feel like it's the one I need to dedicate myself to the most. Um, so, but I think that's it. Those are my little tidbits or, you know, connect with staffers on LinkedIn um, mm -hmm. or on social media platforms, connect with your members of Congress on their social media platforms. And most of them, even if you're not their constituent, will allow you to do that. So, you know, when I say I'm only a constituent of one congressman, but I follow the other four on social media so that I do have an awareness of what's going on. Um, and then I do think the neutrality piece does come into play. 
Um, you know, you, you kind of have to set your own political views. And Mary Beth and I have had this conversation a lot. You have to set your own political views aside um, in order to do the work that we need to do, because this really is a bipartisan issue. It, it's not singled out on any one party, um, but you do have to set your own political beliefs aside a little bit occasionally in order to get the work done. So. Well, that's great. Thank you both for sharing your time and your wisdom. Um, for people who are hearing this and have their interest piqued, you can learn more about ADA advocacy at diabetes.org advocacy. And also make sure to become an advocate so you can get the latest, greatest from Capitol Hill and your state legislature. Our network is half a million strong, but it's our individual voices that keep us going and that will make the difference and bend the curve for people living with diabetes and the people who care about them. Thank you again. And um, this is the end of our very first podcast. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>